This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And now it's time for our Random Acts of Kindness segment. You can find all sorts of these uplifting stories all over this great country and at randomactsofkindness.org. It's an inspiring resource and a great one to share with your kids. And also make sure to leave your story there. Our first story is from Memphis, where we found some kind cops and a young man with a very clear sense of priorities. It's a heartwarming video already viewed thousands of times. Memphis police officers brightening the holidays for an 11-year-old burglary victim. Tonight, the officers are talking about going beyond the call of duty. WMC Action News 5's Jason Miles live tonight with their response. Jason? Those officers work here at the Crump Station Police Precinct. They hope what they did inspires others this holiday season. You see on the news what Memphis police often encounter while on the job. 11-year-old Tontravian Campbell is proof that it's not all bad. Officers replaced the Xbox stolen during a burglary at his family's home. When we asked the, the child if he's going to get a new Xbox for Christmas, he said, no, my mom you know, doesn't have that kind of money. And... Um, all the money she makes goes to pay the bills. Officers from Crump Station's Charlie Shift talked to us about the gesture, which went viral Sunday thanks to this Facebook video. This house was burglarized not too long ago uh, today while these folks were at church. They say Tontravian was more concerned about his mother than the stolen Xbox, which is what impressed them the most. Just to be able to alleviate some of his stress, just for that day and actually help their family when in this time, like Christmas, it, it really was an overwhelming feeling. Contravian actually posted a comment on the WMC Action News 5 Facebook page, writing in part, quote, am so thankful. His mother added, quote, I'm truly grateful for the generosity that was given to my son. Policing is not really about just going into dangerous situations. It's definitely about helping out the community as well. No problem, Something one 11-year-old found out firsthand. And officers bought that new Xbox and three games at the GameStop store in Midtown. The store donated an additional controller. Reporting live from the Crump Station Precinct, Jason Miles, WMC Action News 5. And our second story comes from CBS's Steve Hartman, who meets some of the most interesting and some of the kindest people in this country. For a deaf person like Ibby Paracha of Leesburg, Virginia, getting the drink you want at Starbucks can be a tall order. But Ibby says not here, thanks to a barista who recently did something truly Hello. grande. And when I came in, the first thing she did was she wrote the note. So I thought maybe she had a question for me or something. But it really wasn't a question at all. And as I read through it, it shocked me. He immediately posted this picture of the note which read, I've been learning ASL, American Sign Language, just so you can have the same experience as everyone else. What can I get for you today? That barista is Crystal Payne. Two Trenta iced coffee. She's new here. In fact, she'd only waited on Ibby once before deciding to go home, go on the internet, and learn sign language for him. Maybe I spent like three or more hours on it. Getting ready to take one order? Yeah. If he's a regular and I want to make that connection with my regulars, I should be able to at least ask him what he wants to drink. What you want drinking? Today, Crystal knows everything she needs to wait on Ibby. Caramel frappuccino, please. And that really is the extent of their interaction. To Crystal, it's no big deal. 
But to Ibby, who says navigating a hearing world is often frustrating, what Crystal did was a wonderful gesture that he will never forget. He even saved the note. It was something that was very inspirational, so I wanted to, to keep it in the frame. Sometimes, customer service gets a bad rap, and it's often well-deserved. Hi, what can I get for you today? But there are those frontline workers who go above and beyond, not for a tip or because the boss is watching, but because kindness is who they are, and the customer, all they care about. And it's just something that really gave me genuine happiness. Even now? Yeah, even now. Still smiling. (laughs) And finally, here's a story about how regularly ordering a pizza saved a man's life. In the middle of a very busy Saturday night, the staff at this Domino's Pizza on Silverton Road realized that they hadn't gotten an order from one of their favorite customers in almost two weeks. So they went to check on him, and sure enough, he was having a medical emergency. So we always orders online, so it pretty much just comes up on our main line. Every couple days, Sarah Fuller's staff gets an order from one of their regulars, 48-year-old Kirk Alexander. But over the weekend, it dawned on everyone that they hadn't seen Alexander's name pop up for a long time. A couple different people had pointed it out to me, and so Saturday night was when I finally decided to look up to see when his last order what happened to be, and it was 11 days ago, which is not normal at all. Sarah sent a delivery driver to Alexander's house, and something was clearly wrong. He called us back and said that, you know, he knocked and heard the TV, but he didn't have an answer, and so we gave him his phone number, and then he tried to call. The staff called 911, and when deputies arrived, they heard Alexander inside yelling for help. They forced their way in and found him on the floor having a medical emergency. I bang on the door, but he doesn't always answer. Neighbor Robert Lalonde knows that Alexander's had health problems, so he keeps an eye on him, too. He was also worried that something was wrong, so he's grateful that Domino's stepped in. That's awesome. That is awesome. You know, most people just take it for granted. Yeah. yeah, and that's that's really cool. These Domino's employees are always on the move, trying to make and deliver food fast. But they say they're never too busy to help someone in need. We're always looking out for everyone out there and caring for our customers especially. And early yesterday morning, paramedics responded with deputies as well. They rushed Alexander to Salem Hospital, and he is still there tonight in fair condition. Live in Salem, Jamie Wilson, Fox 12, Oregon. And there you have it from all around this great country. From coast to coast, it's constantly happening. You just never hear about it. But here on Our American Stories, we do it every week. Random Acts of Kindness. And you can go to randomactsofkindness.org. Look for stories like this. Better still, post your stories there. And go to ouramericannetwork.org to catch all of our stories and all of our random acts of kindness. More after these messages. American stories. And now it's time for our This Day in History segment. 
Brought to us, as always, by the folks at Hillsdale College, the best place in America to study all the finer things in life, art, literature, history, philosophy. Sports are woven into the daily fabric of life for the students there and faith. And I've spent a lot of time at Hillsdale College, taught there for two weeks at a time the past year or two, and the students are remarkable, the faculty's remarkable. If you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale can get to you. Go to hillsdale.edu and check out their terrific and free online courses. And we've been doing This Days in Histories for a long time. Go to ouramericannetwork.org. Go to the This Day in History segment. Pull it down. There are almost 150 of them or more now, and they're terrific. And that's everything from Frank Sinatra's birth to the Battle at Yorktown. And today, this story came to us originally from Stan when he had just started, and the team does great work here. And I'd never heard this story before. Sit back and take a listen. I won't stay with you, babe. Won't you let me stay? You're a beautiful girl. They called her the most beautiful woman in Europe, and later, the most beautiful woman in the world. Before there was Marilyn Monroe, there was this woman, a beauty that she controversially shared with the world in the movie Ecstasy, in her role as Eva, a role that many credit for being the very first sex scene in major cinema. You might think her to be some shallow person, but you'd be wrong. Her name? Hedy Lamar. You've got to learn to take no for an answer once in a while. I wouldn't let you give me that answer. Take a look at yourself. Why should I want to? That was Hedy starring opposite Clark Gable in Boomtown. Born in Austria, she started her acting career in Germany. Soon thereafter, at the tender age of 19, she married one of Austria's richest and most connected arms dealers, Friedrich Mandel. Hetty's new husband cared far more about rubbing elbows with the friends of Hitler and Mussolini than whatever his young wife was interested in. So in between dinner parties, Hetty looked for a way out. Here's her son describing Hetty's fit for Hollywood journey. One evening, Hetty drugged the maid, literally, with sleeping pills. The maid went to sleep, and Hetty escaped out the window, made her way to Paris, then over to London. She came to the United States on the Normandy. Hetty arrived in America in 1938 and quickly made an impression. One early moviegoer said that when Hetty's face first appeared on screen, the audience literally gasped. She starred in dozens of Hollywood films with the era's top stars, helped to sell millions of dollars of war bonds during World War II, and would go on to have a spot on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Most actresses then or now would trade an arm for that kind of success, but Hetty apparently considered it a part-time job. At the height of her Hollywood fame, Hetty decided to try her hand at inventing. 
She put in a drafting table at home and started wondering. Which everyday items could I improve? What interesting problems could I solve? She first tinkered with ideas for a better traffic light and a tablet that would turn water into carbonated soda, much like Alka-Seltzer. But Hetty's most famous invention, the idea to lead her to induction into the National Inventors Hall of Fame, it was something that tied together her earlier marriage to an arms dealer, the needs of World War II naval combat, and some special piano know-how from an eccentric composer friend. The Germans were wreaking havoc on military and civilian shipping with stealthy submarines. Allied and Axis navies fired very powerful torpedoes. But these weapons were very hard to control. Hetty wondered, could torpedoes be steered with some sort of radio signal? She realized that the major hurdle would be jamming. If a ship or sub steered a torpedo from firing to impact with a steady radio signal, the Germans could just jam that frequency. So Hetty thought outside the box, like there wasn't one at all. Historian Jim Corcus once said about Walt Disney, Today you hear people talk about thinking outside the box, but Walt would say, No, don't think outside the box. Once you say that, you've established that there is a box. Walt would refuse to accept the existence of the box. And so did Hetty. Her friend George Antal was an avant-garde composer who once wrote a bizarre ballet piece that called for, among other things, 16 player pianos. Player pianos are the ones that seem to play themselves. Today they're run by computers, but back then they used so-called records. These were long rolls of paper with holes punched across 88 rows indicating which keys to strike at what time. Hetty and George realized that the radio frequency jamming problem could be solved if the transmitter and receiver jumped from frequency to frequency, kept in sync by identical records. It would be like two player pianos playing the same tune at the same time. This way the Allied ship and its torpedo could stay connected by radio, but to the Germans it would appear as if they were randomly flipping through the dial. After all, if George could synchronize 16 pianos, how hard can it be with just two? The unlikely pair of inventors was awarded a patent for this idea on August 11, 1942, under the title of Secret Communication System. This type of frequency hopping technology was rare at the time, and Navy bureaucrats probably threw it into a filing cabinet because how could some actress and composer invent something the government couldn't? Even though it wasn't put into play in World War II, this basic idea of having a transmitter and receiver move across frequencies in sync is key to our modern Wi-Fi and Bluetooth gadgets. In the 90s, when wireless communications companies filed new patents for the technology in our pockets today, they stumbled upon the 1942 patent. By this time, Hetty was in her 80s and barely left home, as decades of bad plastic surgery had not been kind to the world's most beautiful woman. When the tech executives called Hetty to offer some recognition for her earlier invention, 
Her first words were, Well, it's about time. Hetty Lamar is such an interesting woman to talk about because she is almost impossible to describe in conventional terms. What do you call a pioneering movie star, wartime fundraiser, and inventor? Today we tell our kids and young professionals that walking a long, clearly defined, narrow path is the way to success. And don't even think about being an inventor. There's no stability in that. Hetty Lamar, and certainly the so-called Renaissance men before her, took a different approach. These people had tremendously varied interests, and the only thing they carried across seemingly unrelated fields was their curiosity. It is exactly this type of mind that builds bridges between people and disciplines that might otherwise never meet and answers questions that might otherwise never be asked. Hetty lived to be 85 and died in Florida on this day in history in the year 2000. Today we remember her and celebrate that curious, adventurous spirit that America and the world needs to answer the questions not enough people are asking today. And just a story I did not know, and I consider myself a big movie buff. And Hetty was uh, ahead of her time in so many ways. But my goodness, frequency hopping technology on the side, or actually acting on the side, frequency technology as her serious business. The media didn't cover that story, but we do here on Our American Stories, our This Days in History, as always, brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. Go to hillsdale.edu. Sign up for their great, free online courses. Again, this is Our American Stories. in the ashtray Half empty bottle of Gatorade rolling in the floorboard That dirty Braves cap on the dash Dog tags hanging from the rear view Old skull can and cowboy boots and a gold army shirt Folded in the back This thing burns gas like crazy that's all right People got their ways of coping Oh, and I got mine I drive your truck I roll every window down And I burn up Every back road in this town I find a field I tear it Sometimes 
This is Our American Stories, and it's time for another edition of our Story of a Song series. We've done another Brick in the Wall, Gimme Shelter, Billy Joel's Lullaby, The Doors Light My Fire, Jesus Take the Wheel, and There Goes My Life. This may be my favorite one. And you're listening to Lee Bryce singing I Drive Your Truck, a song that was number one on the Billboard country charts and won Song of the Year at the CMA in 2013. And one of the co-writers of this song is Connie Harrington. And her inspiration for it came while driving her car in Nashville one Memorial Day a few years back. And she was listening on the radio about this gold star father, the distinction for families who lost a loved one in service. He mentioned that he drove his son's truck. And and he went on to describe the truck. And I'm in the car, and uh, I keep a little stack of Post-it notes and I begin to write the details of the truck um, while I was driving. I know I'm crying and driving on trying not to run off the road. I scribbled down, you know, that he said it burns a lot of gas, but he didn't care. He drove it anyway. Uh, he said he, he hasn't cleaned the truck up, <laughs> and uh, people get on to him for that, but it's you kind of want to have their things the way they were. And this heart-wrenching and heartwarming account of this father led to I Drive Your Truck to the song. And you just heard it. You're going to hear it again at the end. And it'll all make a lot more sense. And here's that original interview Connie was listening to with Paul Monty, that father who lost his son, Jared, in Afghanistan in 2006. Boston radio station WBUR's Alex Ashlack is interviewing Paul in the Massachusetts National Cemetery in Cape Cod, where Jared is buried. It is Memorial Day 2011, and Paul has started a foundation to make sure all the grave sites have an American flag. I think I have this right. Do you still drive Jared's truck? Yes, I do. There it is. (laughs) Yep. Tell me about that truck. Uh, What can I tell you? It's just, it's him, it's... Got his DNA all over it. Um, I just, I love driving it because it reminds me of him, though I don't need the truck to remind me of him. I think about him every hour of every day. It's a Dodge 4x4 Ram 1500. It's got the uh, decals, the 10th Mountain Division, 82nd Airborne Division, American flags, uh, a bumper sticker for the Jared Monte Scholarship Fund. Uh, my gold star plate <laughs> on there. Go Army, support the troops. And uh, though it only gets uh, pretty bad mileage, <laughs> it's uh, I'm happy driving it. He's with me, but he's with me all the time anyway. And let's rejoin Paul Monty as he describes the difference between losing a parent and losing a child. People tell you time heals all. Well, in this case, it doesn't. Losing a parent is one thing. That's your past. But losing a child, you've lost your future. You don't have those grandkids to look forward to and those, those special days of going to the ballpark together or going fishing. All of that that you envisioned is gone. Losing your child is like losing your future. And it's so true. And we would be remiss if we didn't talk about the young man Paul's son, Jared, who was posthumously received 
the Congressional Medal of Honor, our nation's highest medal for valor on the battlefield. Jared was trying to rescue a fellow soldier in the midst of an intense firefight with over 50 enemy combatants. He didn't try once, not twice, but three times to rescue fellow soldier Brian Bradbury. It was on his third and last attempt that Jared gave the ultimate sacrifice for his fellow soldier and his country. Let's listen to Paul describe who his son was. Jared never liked any kind of notoriety at all. Um, All his medals went in a sock drawer. No one ever saw them. Um, He never wanted to stand out. So he wouldn't have done this in a big venue. He would have found a warehouse somewhere with an unlocked door and uh, appropriated or borrowed some flags, come down here in the middle of the night, put them all in, and someone would have come the next day and say, wow, someone decorated the cemetery. That, that was the way he was. Um, he never would have admitted that it was him that did it because he did that his whole life. He just, we had a, we had a family in, uh, in Rainham, a single mom with three kids, and uh, he got to know her, and she wasn't going to have a Christmas. So he came home. He was 17 years old. He came home, and I had a bunch of spruce trees in the front yard. They were, you know, six feet tall. And uh, he asked me if he could cut one down. And uh, I says, you know, what for? He says, well, uh, just, just, you know, the guys, we want to we wanna have our own little Christmas. I said, okay, go ahead. Well, it wasn't until after he died that I found out what he did. He cut the tree down. They bought a stand. They bought all the decorations for the tree. They bought presents for the kids and the mom. They uh, brought it over a house, set the tree up, put the lights on it, decorated it, bought them Christmas dinner, and left presents. Never told a soul. It was his friends that told me after he had passed that he had done this. He was 17. He was 17. Yeah. Yep. That's the way he lived his life. Always. Always. It was always the underdog that he stood up for. And uh, just everything was done quietly, though. It was, uh, you know, another is he was at Fort Bragg, North Carolina. And uh, he and two other buddies got a place together. And they went out and they furnished it. And one day the two guys came home and the kitchen set was missing. And Jared went home and they started, Jared, look kitchen set's gone. Where is it? Jared said, well, I was over at one of my soldiers' houses today, and his kids were eating on the floor. So I figured they needed the kitchen set more than we did. So so the $700 kitchen set disappeared. <laughs> That's what he did. He was, he was like Robin Hood. One day down there also, the sofa and uh, love seat disappeared from the enlisted office's uh, place they didn't know where it went that was him again <laughs> it disappeared and went to someone that needed it so and and again you know he did this wherever he went when, when he was in korea or in kosovo and afghanistan it was whatever someone needed they got it one way or another and, and if it meant you know doing something on the sly what the heck it, it's a matter of doing the right thing and who needs what And again, that's Paul Monty, the Gold Star Dad, talking about his son. A songwriter hearing this interview and being so moved that she had no choice, was compelled to pull over to the side of the road, take down these notes, and write a song about this 
beautiful, beautiful father and son. What a father-son story. More story of a song, I Drive Your Truck. This is Our American Stories. It's the story of a song. Paul Monty, the father, inspired these lyrics. But it was the son's life that inspired Paul. And hopefully, listening to this story, inspiring all of us. And when we left off, we were talking about Connie Harrington, the songwriter who had heard this story, had heard this interview, from the Gold Star father talking about his son and driving his son's truck. And my goodness, there had to be a song in it, she thought. She wrote a lot of notes. She came back, talked to her friend, Jesse Alexander, with whom she writes and co-writes a lot of songs in and around Nashville. And Jesse Alexander, the co-writer of this great song, explained the songwriting process. I just remember being pregnant with the twins and not even really wanting to go to work, but I saw Connie on my book and would never miss a day with her. And uh, just, I remember, you know, she always has great titles. Connie's just known for having so so many great ideas. And she started to kind of go through different ones. They just weren't really striking my fancy, you know. It was a little blurry, foggy from the pregnancy. And uh, then she said, well, I do have this one. And she immediately started to cry. She couldn't, I mean... She said, I have this one. And, you know, that's, that's as far as she got. And I said, well, let me hear that. And she's like, <laughs> she, she's like well, it's about this. And then that was over. And she couldn't, she literally couldn't. She said, well, later. She said later. But Jesse, well, she kept pressing. And it turns out Connie did discover a title of that song. Let's continue to listen to Jesse. When she said, finally came around to saying the title, there were, a lot of immediately I knew I had a big responsibility like this, this was a really like you know kid gloves the number one thing didn't want to mess it up I didn't want to mess it up <laughs> second thing I didn't I knew for a fact 
with everything in me that I was not solely meant to write this melody and you weren't solely meant to write that there was a missing piece for us in the room and for me that was a male voice because you know being female songwriters we really struggle writing songs for men and it's hard it's hard for men to write stories about women and we can try we can try and empathize but in the end these writers know the truth of the matter and so they reached out to Jimmy Yeary and he helped complete this song. We had a title, we had an idea, we had the storylines, we had notes. It was all shared with Jimmy Yeary, a co-writer. There were three co-writers on I Drive Your Truck. And here's Jesse continuing about the creation of this great song in our, in our story of a song, I Drive Your Truck. He just nailed it. And I'll, I just never forget the feeling of when it was done and just the prayer that came over all of us like, please let this song just be heard. You know, we have so many songs vaulted and every day we, you know, we write a song that just gets put in some, I've got hundreds and hundreds of songs put away, but God, let this one just get heard. So one day that guy could hear that song. Yep. And that's the fear of every songwriter that the song just never gets heard. And now let's take a listen to Jesse Alexander, one of the three co-writers of I Drive Your Truck, singing live an acoustic version of this beautiful song. 89 cents in the ashtray Half empty bottle of Gatorade Rolling on the floorboard That dirty breeze cap on the dash Dog tags hanging from the review Old school can of cowboy boots And a gold army shirt Folded in the back This thing burns gas like crazy Oh, but that's alright People got their ways of coping Yeah, I got mine I drive your truck I roll every window down And I burn up Every back road in this town I find a field Tear it up till all the pains cloud off dust. Just sometimes I drive your truck. And now let's listen to the father react to the song itself, of course, Lee Bryce's version, and what that song means to him. It was very uplifting. It was a song that's touched the hearts of Gold Star families throughout the country. As well as well as other families that have lost their their child, and um, you know, it, it's fitting that we have something out there that honors them that they can hold on to. And again, that was Paul Monty, the grief of a father, and it will never go away. There'll be no closure. One more quote from Paul Monty, and then we're going to play the entire song. You know, I think it's important for people to understand, or at least try to understand, what gold star parents go through. Your child is your future. When you lose your child, you've lost your future. And I think one of the reasons so many gold star parents drive their children's trucks is because they have to hold on. They just have to hold on. We covered some of that earlier, but it was worth just reading again. The grief Jared's father feels will never go away. 
He'll probably drive that truck of his son's for as long as it will run, and then longer. By the way, the last verse of this song, again, we're about to play it in its entirety. Well, it says it all. I've cussed, I've prayed, I've said goodbye. I've shook my fist and asked God why. These days, when I'm missing you this much, I drive your truck. It's perfect writing. And again, a beautiful, beautiful piece of work by these three co-writers, all of whom shared so graciously this song to all of these Gold Star families. Let's take a listen. in the ashtray Half empty bottle of Gatorade rolling in the floorboard That dirty Braves cap on the dash Dog tags hanging from the rear view Old skull can and cowboy boots and a gold army shirt folded in the back This thing burns gas like crazy that's alright People got their ways coping Oh, and I got mine I drive your truck I roll every window down And I burn up Every back road in this town I find a field I tear it up I leave that radio play Same old country station Where you left it Yeah man I crank it up And you'd probably punch my arm right now If you saw this tear rolling down on my face Hey man, I'm trying to be tough And mama asked me this morning If I'd been by your grave But that flag and stone Ain't where I feel you This is Our American Stories The story of a song the story of Paul Monty, his grief for a fallen soldier who happened to be his son and the love of his life, or one of them. This is, again, Our American Stories. Sometimes I drive your 
Our American stories, and we love bringing you great interviews about great books. And today, we read about a book in the Wall Street Journal review section, and the review is titled "400 Years of Huddled Masses Yearning to Breathe Free." And that review began as such: "Quote: When Annie Moore stepped ashore at Ellis Island on New Year's Day in 1892, she became the first immigrant to enter the U.S. through the government's new reception center." She would be followed by 15 million others over the next 62 years. But Annie, who had emigrated from Cork, Ireland, with her two younger brothers, was already an anomaly in the mutable world of immigration. Most of her fellow passengers were no longer the Irish who had dominated New York immigration for the better part of the 19th century, but impoverished Eastern European Jews. By the end of World War I, they would account for 600,000 of New York's 2 million foreign-born residents. Within a century, their share would dwindle, as had the great waves of Italians, Irish, Germans, and other Europeans who took root in the city to be replaced by a migration of global dimensions. It is the protean nature of these waves, from 17th century Dutch to 21st century Dominicans, that is the subject of Tyler Anbinder's ambitious book, City of Dreams, the 400-year epic history of immigrant New York. And Tyler, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me on. And and Tyler, this is an ambitious project. What made you decide to pick it? Well, in in part, it was because of the the scope of it. I've written two other books before, and I wanted wanted something that was uh, a challenge. And it seemed like telling a 400-year story would be a challenge both from research-wise and in terms of uh, kind of a narrative challenge. How can you make it make such a long story not be encyclopedic? How can you make it, it personality-driven and bi- biographically-driven? And that was what I strove to do. And, and let's talk about New York immigration in particular, because that's what the book's about. But what were the other major ports of entry besides Ellis Island in our nation's history, before Ellis Island? In other words, how, Tyler, did folks come here? Well, New York had, has been the place more immigrants have landed than any other place for, for almost all of American history. Before Ellis Island opened in 1892, you had a, an immigration reception station called Castle Garden in New York. It was at the very southern tip of Manhattan, and it was, it was in, a, in an abandoned theater is where they did the processing of the immigrants, and that was the place that it went on for you know, the 40 years before Ellis Island opened. And, and before that, before the 1850s, immigrants just walked off the ship and into America. There was no processing or questioning or testing at all. 
They just came. They just came. Yep. And by the way, a lot of people believe that through the self-selection process, anyone who would get it on a ship and come across for what was then weeks, uh, well, you pretty much, if you were going to go through all that, you were probably on your way to citizenship and, and being a good citizen anyway, because what a thing to do to leave your home country and everything else you knew behind. Yes, it, it's hard for, for anyone who's not an immigrant to to kind of imagine what it must be like. Uh, it's really a wrenching experience to, to read the memoirs that, and to talk to immigrants themselves. You know, you're leaving behind everything you've known. You're going into this this unknown territory in, in every sense. And even if you have friends who are there, even if you have relatives who are there, still, you're just you're uprooting everything you've known and, uh, and starting, in a sense, from scratch. Yeah, it's true. And, and by the way, I have a grand, grandfather on one side who came from Lebanon, and he took me to Ellis Island, and he always took me to the uh, July 4th induction ceremonies in Jersey City. And then I had a grandfather on the Italian side, and both of them told me about just how terrified they were and how hard it was. Uh, and they reinforced that to me, that this is no duck walk coming over here, and I'd better be grateful for all they did because it was really hard. And a lot of their family members back home thought they were just plumb crazy, Tyler. Yeah, I mean that that raises a couple of points. One is one is the fact that for a lot of immigrants, they, they come to America not so much for themselves, but for their for their descendants, for their kids and their grandkids. They know that you know their life may not improve in America, but they but they do know that that the opportunities for their kids and their grandkids will be much greater than they would have been had those kids and grandkids stayed in in Ireland or Lebanon. Yep. And that's, a, that's something that was instilled in so many of the people I knew. I, I grew up in a place where everybody was related to a grandfather, mostly, who would, or a grandmother who had come here from the, from the mother country, so to speak, to come to this new adoptive home. And all the grandparents drilled into us uh, that, that idea of gratitude. I'm worried that the next generation now removed doesn't know those people, hasn't met those people, and hasn't looked in their eye when they tell those early stories, Tyler. And I think your book does a real service in this regard. Was that one of the things you were going after in a, in a, in a way? It really was. I, you know, I feel like more and more Americans are, are kind of remote from the experiences of their immigrant ancestors. And, and that was part of the reason to write the book. And part of the reason I wanted to cover so much ground a lot of people said that I was crazy to try to cover so much in one book, but uh, what I wanted to do was something so that no matter when your ancestor came to America, whether they were, you know, came in the 1600s or whether they came in the 1960s, that that their experience would be told. Well, let's talk, start from the beginning. And why is Ellis Island commissioned? What what happened there? What what was the reason that happened? Well, over the course of the 19th century, Americans start to become more and more anxious about immigrants, more and more fearful that somehow immigrants are becoming less desirable, that the people who are coming to the United States aren't, aren't of the same, to use the term used at the time, aren't of the same quality. And so, so Congress begins enacting more and more laws to try to to keep out people who they believed were undesirable. And so they start with things like intelligence. So they right. they, uh, they ban what they call imbeciles and, and things of that sort. So they're starting to put limits and think about limits. 
And thus, the talk about immigration and the tough talk about immigration, well, it's not new. And we're listening to Tyler Anbinder, professor at George Washington University. The book City of Dreams, the 400-year epic history of immigrant New York. More on our American stories with the professor after these messages. Our American Stories, and we continue our conversation with Tyler Anbinder, the book City of Dreams, the 400-year epic history of immigrant New York. And, and Tyler, talk about, uh, in context, uh, how significant to New York's history immigration had been, both in terms of numbers and in terms of impact, and that's for better or for worse. Oh, immigrants have always played a key part in the life of New York City. Um, just because so many immigrants land in New York and, and so often they don't have enough money or enough strength to go any further, uh, New York has been the home always to huge numbers of immigrants. And we tend to think that, that today must be, you know, the peak of immigrants in New York's history where 37% of New York City residents are foreign-born. But, but back in the 1850s, you had more than half of New York's residents, uh, New York's residents foreign-born and 70% of its adults being immigrants. So, so we're far from the peak, and, and it's always been that way. And it's good to know the history because sometimes hysteria can be muted by actual history. Uh, let's start at the beginning. Who were the first wave of immigrants into New York? What were they like? What was their impact? Well, the very first immigrants in New York were primarily Dutch and Belgian, um, people coming from, from uh, Western Europe, the, the Dutch set up New Amsterdam in the 1620s as a, as a trading post, as a place that you could, you could bring furs from the interior of the United States or what was then just North America and then ship them to Europe. And the Dutch run New, York, uh, New Amsterdam for its first 40 years. And then the, Brit- the British take it over and it becomes a, an English colony and, and it begins filling with English immigrants. And soon, soon Scots come thereafter, uh, people in Scotland not finding it harder to, to make ends meet than they than they would have liked. And they heard about the great opportunities you had in America. And so a lot of them come to New York. And so, so in its first 100, 150 years, the Dutch and then the English and then the Scots. And, and by the time right before the American Revolution, the Irish are, are the biggest immigrant group. And so it, it's constantly changing. And the Wall Street Journal wrote this uh, at, at, during this earlier period, while all was not harmonious, there were brawls, racial and religious strife, slavery, and battles between colonists and Indians. The inhabitants, for the most part, managed to get along, motivated more by commerce than creed, a far cry from the theocracy of Puritan New England. And so how do these cultures, they're, all, they're, they're from different places. It's hard now to think of these places as different, but they are different types of folks. Uh, talk about the differences and the commonalities between these groups, and then let's talk about the next wave of immigrants, and I think things got even more interesting. 
Well, it's it's just like you say. We, you, you think, well, the Dutch and the Belgians and the English, how different could they be? They're all from Western Europe, but they saw themselves as totally different, different languages. In particular, uh, the different different uh, strains of Protestantism, and that was a big deal in, in early New York. So the Dutch didn't want Lutherans in New York. They didn't want Quakers in New York. They didn't want Jews in New York, and they... Uh, Peter Stuyvesant, the, the first successful uh, governor of the colony, uh, was very quick to ban uh, immigrants from almost any religious group. Uh, his Dutch bosses, his, uh, his employers back in Holland would, would complain and say, no, you can't do this. But being several thousand miles away, uh, Stuyvesant could pretty much do what he wanted. And so even though we think of New York as this kind of place of, of immigrant harmony in its early history, there was always a lot of tension and, and fighting among the immigrants. And then in come, in the mid-1840s, the Irish immigrants. Uh, talk about the impact they had. And my goodness, Protestants and Catholics starting to really go at it. And the Irish weren't exactly totally welcome by the old-line immigrants, were they? No, and especially, that's especially the case after... Uh, the mid-1840s, when the potato famine hits Ireland. And so what had been a constant flow of Irish into America in general, and New York in particular, became a, a real flood in the late 1840s and early 1850s. And, and literally tens of thousands of Irish immigrants settled in New York each year. It kind of remade the city so that, that by, you know, by the 1850s, there was really virtually no part of New York that wasn't dominated by Irish immigrants. There were a few a few neighborhoods where the Germans predominated, but other than that, it became an Irish town. And and like you said, the the native-born uh, Protestants in particular did not like that the Irish immigrants were predominantly Catholic, um, and they clashed over over that. And in particular, the role of religion in schools. And so it was it was a a very heated. Uh, a very heated time between Protestants and Catholics in that period. Yeah, and I think for many people, they think, well, what's the difference? They're both Christians. Oh, my goodness, read up, read up indeed. You've written before also about the enclave of Five Points, that notorious slum between Canal Street and City Hall. Talk about that part of the city at that time. I mean, there's, there's been a great movie made about it, but uh, talk about that. So Five Points was the the neighborhood in New York that was most synonymous with Irish immigrants, and in particular, poor Irish immigrants. It was built over where, where a lake had once been, so the ground was very damp, and it shifted quickly uh, after things were built on it, and so it became a part of, the, of uh, New York that nobody wanted to live in, uh, so only the poorest of the poor would settle there, and in this period, that was, those were the uh, Irish famine immigrants. Um, and so it becomes notorious for its, its crowded and dilapidated tenements. It also becomes notorious for crime and for, for drunkenness. Um, but it becomes famous for other things. It's where some of the city's most famous dance halls were, and you have, uh, uh, you have a lot of innovation in dance there, African-Americans and Irish dancing together and, and creating new forms of dance like tap dance, which uh, seems to have been created there by the, by the immigrants and the African-Americans there. So it was, a, it was an, an exciting place to be, but also one that could be very hard to survive in. And talk about also the influx of a new kind of immigrant, and that's the Italians. And some of the, you know, right now it always amuses me when people call me a white American. I'm half Lebanese, half Italian. Even the Census Bureau didn't consider me white. 
And I'd love to know what those Northern Europeans and even the Irish started to think when these Italians came to town. Right. So the very same neighborhoods where the Irish uh, had dominated in the first half of the 19th century, uh, Italian immigrants start to dominate in the later half of the 19th century. And Five Points was one of those places. And, and the Italian immigration starts like the Irish had as kind of a trickle, but it snowballs through chain migration where one person comes and then they tell their relatives, oh, it's great here, you should come too, and sometimes they even pay for their relatives to come immigrate. And so by the late 19th century, um, there were more Italians coming to the United States than people from any other place. And, and New York became as famous for its Italian immigrants by 1900 as it had been for its Irish immigrants a generation earlier. And, and New York had developed several little Italys, not just the one we know today, down by Mulberry Street, but uh, further uptown and even uh, in Harlem. Yep. And uh, the, the, the great restaurant Rayo's is in that place up on 114th and Pleasant. That used to be an Italian neighborhood, and that may be the last sign and vestige of that old Italian neighborhood, the great restaurant, the legendary restaurant, Rayo's. And, and also the, 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 the Italians were Catholics. So how did this impact the, the Catholic and Protestant battle that was going on inside New York? I mean, you, you ultimately have this remarkable Catholic school complex built in New York City, tremendous numbers of elementary schools, high schools. Why did that all happen? That's a great question. So you would imagine that that with all these uh, Italian Catholics coming to join the Irish Catholics, that the Irish would be thrilled because the, the Catholic population of the city is getting much larger, and they make up a much higher proportion of the city's population. They, they would have more political clout. But in fact, the Italians and the Irish got along very badly. Um, the Irish resented the Italians coming to, quote-unquote, their neighborhoods and starting to dominate them. The Irish, in particular, hated having to go to, to Mass and other services in their Catholic churches with the Italians. They hated it so much that, in, in many cases, they would ban the Italian immigrants from, uh, from uh, Mass in the main uh, part of the church and, and, ba- and banish them to the basement. That was the case in Five Points and in, up in, uh, at the, the main church in Italian Harlem and in many parts of the city. So uh, the Italians then come to resent the Irish, who... Uh, who they feel are treating them treating them just as badly as had the uh, their bosses and their uh, landlords in Italy. Well, we'll hold that thought and so much for peace and harmony. And it turns out the new immigrants treat the even new immigrants well the same way they got treated. And it's sort of well, it's just the way it is. It's like being that first year class at West Point. Good luck to you. The City of Dreams, the 400-year epic history of immigrant New York by historian Tyler Ann Viner, a professor at George Washington University. We continue our conversation after these messages.
is Our American Stories. We continue with Tyler Anbinder. The City of Dreams is the book. Immigration is the subject. And you're listening to the different beats as we're coming in and out of New York City. And it covers every kind of music, every kind of food. And before we get into the, the wave of Puerto Ricans, Dominicans, and then ultimately Haitians, I did want to cover two other groups with you, Professor, the Jews, because we spent an hour talking about the life of Irving Berlin. And Rudyard Kipling had come to New York, had gone to those, those terrible, poor neighborhoods, and he had written about how he had seen poverty perhaps as bad as he had seen in Bombay, but that he had seen the spirit particularly of the American Jew. And he said he had good feelings that America would be in good hands with those people. And he was just so thoroughly impressed with the Jews and the American Jews in particular, America itself too. But talk about the American Jews and their remarkable uh, migration story and then just what they managed to do despite persistent discrimination in a city uh, that, that at times welcomed them but at times didn't. Sure. Where the, there had been Jews living in New York ever since the 1600s, even when it was New Amsterdam. Um, and the Jews become a big presence in the city, really starting in the late 1800s, when you get uh, a mass migration of East European Jews coming to America. And more so than any other immigrant group, Jews tended to stay in New York City itself. Um, and in part, that's because they came to dominate the garment industry, which was one of New York's biggest industries. And, and these Jewish immigrants from Eastern Europe are coming to the United States in part because of persecution at the hands of the czars of Russia. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also for the same you know, reasons for economic uh, opportunity that others have come from. So th- that combination of, of incentives brought uh, several million Jews to America, and as I say, the largest number of them settled in New York City, so that they became the largest immigrant group in New York City by the beginning of the 20th century. And how they impact the city economically and culturally, given the percentage of the population, is just remarkable, Professor. Talk about that. Yeah. Uh, so what you have is, you know, as you say, it, it kind of runs the gamut. So so one of the big uh, things uh, that that becomes a dominant part of New York City as a result of this big Jewish immigration is the is New York's uh, Jewish deli. Uh, and New Yorkers of every ethnic stripe will eventually start start eating pastrami and corned beef sandwiches at, at Jewish delis and, and even matzo ball soup. And, and uh, so that's one way in which it happens. Jews also become a very important players in New York City politics um, at first, uh, you know, much faster than, say, the Italians who are coming at the same time. Jews uh, in part because they're persecuted. It tends to be the, the persecuted immigrants like the Irish and the Jews who become active in politics first. Um, and so Jews begin uh, electing members of Congress uh, very early in the 20th century and members of the uh, New York State legislature and so forth. And so that becomes another thing that they become kind of renowned for among New York's immigrants. And then in the sciences and the arts, too, um, the impact in the next generation, the garment workers... Well, those executives and those business owners, and it's mostly business owners and small business owners, uh, want their kids to go to school. They want them to go to college. And uh, soon there's this dominance in the sciences that's pretty remarkable, again, given the, given the percentage of folks 
that Jews represent in the aggregate population. Right. So one of the ways in which uh, that happens is you have, you know, you have a free, uh, you have free uh, college education in New York in those days at the city colleges. And so places like City College, Brooklyn College, you know, will we'll end up turning out Nobel laureates because the, the children of these garment workers, uh, the, you know, the garment workers want their kids to have the success that they couldn't have uh, either in back in Europe or that, that their parents couldn't have in America. And so they push their kids very hard to, to get good educations and to, to go into fields like the sciences uh, that, will, that will bring them fame and fortune, and, and they do. Yeah, and I think status, too. I think this is a great way through fame and fortune to get the respect and the status that the Jews felt they deserved, and indeed they did. Let's talk about the the migration from Puerto Rico uh, and also the Dominican Republic and Haiti, because it's fascinating. And I know some some folks, you know, when you talk go out to parts of Queens and you look at per capita income of African-Americans who've come from Haiti, it outstrips many white parts of New York City. Uh, the heavy dependence and dominance in the medical field, particularly. Talk about these groups. They're they're different. Uh, they're dynamic, and they change the city once again. Sure, Puerto Ricans start coming to New York in in large numbers in the 1920s. This is a result of the immigration restrictions that Congress puts in place. Uh, so Italian immigration plummets because Italians are restricted to just a tiny fraction of their former numbers. Same with Eastern European Jews. Um, and yet New York employers still want immigrants to do uh, work, especially at the lowest end of the, of the economic ladder. Puerto Ricans are American citizens, so they're exempt from the immigration restrictions. And so they start coming to New York in the 1920s as soon as the, as the uh, immigration restrictions are put in place on, on people from other parts of the world. And they start moving into fields like um, domestic service, into factory work, and eventually even into the garment industry. Um, and, and then, uh, as far as Dominicans are concerned, Dominicans become, they're, today they're the largest immigrant group in New York City. Um, and their interest in coming to America also developed in part out of um, American foreign policy. We, we, uh, we intervene and occupy the Dominican Republic several times in the early 20th century, and uh, especially a second time in the 1960s. And, and that intervention led many Dominicans to want to come to the United States. Uh, and that begins in the 1960s in earnest and, uh, uh, and blossoms after that so that uh, soon Dominicans become, uh, will surpass Puerto Ricans as the largest Latino group in New York. Uh, then as far as uh, people from the, from the English-speaking parts of the Caribbean are concerned, that also becomes a, a huge immigrant uh, a huge immigrant group in the starting in the 1960s. Uh, those islands aren't doing very well economically, um, and in particular, people find that they can get, as you said, into into like the health field. And so, huge numbers of nurses and home health aides uh, will will come and find that they can get work in New York City's hospitals and, and in the medical industry generally. And so, that becomes a huge attraction to those immigrants as well. And last but not least, I can't leave out Little Odessa. Brighton Beach and that part of Brooklyn and the Russian, that next Russian uh, uh, wave, because the early Russian wave was, of course, Jews emigrating from Russia. But this was just Russians of all kinds coming from Russia. Uh, talk about that, that wave of Russians that came 
and now populate such a wide swath of that particular part of Brooklyn and around the whole city. Sure. So that that uh, that little Odessa in the very southern part of Brooklyn by Brighton Beach, that begins actually as primarily still Jewish immigrants uh, coming out during the, the kind of thaw in the Cold War in the 1970s. Um, but then, as you say, by uh, later on, uh, people from the Soviet Union start becoming uh, Jews as well as non-Jews. And, and whether they're Jewish or not, they'll, they'll tend, if they're living in New York, to go uh, to go to South Brooklyn, where they find people who speak Russian, and they find the Russian foods that they like. Uh, and so of all the parts of New York today, um, Brighton Beach has the second highest concentration of foreign-born in all the country. Eighty percent of the people who live in certain parts of Brighton Beach are, are foreign-born. And so that gives you a sense of, the, uh, of how concentrated that uh, immigrant neighborhood is. That's a remarkable number. And we're talking to Professor Tyler Anbinder. The book City of Dreams, the 400-year epic history of immigrant New York. In our last segment, we'll get into some particular people who influenced the outcome of this great city and this great country, the country founded by and continuing to be fueled by immigrants. This is Our American Stories. Seventy-nine years ago, I celebrated my sixth birthday in the black, dark hole of a creaking ship rammed with wretched, praying, terrorized immigrants. Thirteen days of misery. And then the ship stopped. And my father grabbed me and carried me up the steep iron stairs to the deck. And then he shouted, Chico, look at that. At first, all I saw was a deck full of people on their knees, crying and rejoicing. My father cried, that's the greatest light since the star of Bethlehem. I looked up and there was the statue of a great lady, taller than the church steeple, holding a lamp over the land we were about to enter. And my father said, it's the light of freedom, Chico. Remember that. Freedom. And you're listening to Frank Capper, the man who brought us such inimitable movies as It's a Wonderful Life. And Mr. Smith goes to Washington. And the year was 1903. And he remembered it vividly. And that's him at the American Film Institute getting the Lifetime Achievement Award and telling that story to a mesmerized audience that included Bob Hope and Betty Davis. By the time that talk was over, there wasn't a dry eye in the house. And we're talking about New York City, New York, and immigration. We're talking about the book City of Dreams, and we're talking to Professor Tyler Anbinder, who teaches at the George Washington University. And let's get into some specific individuals now, if we can, Professor. Let's start with Felix Brannigan. Tell us about him. Felix Brannigan was an Irish immigrant uh, who came to New York with the wave of potato famine immigrants. 
Um, and he moved around like many immigrants. He, he actually moved to Pittsburgh and then joined the uh, Army in the Civil War. And I talk about Felix Brannigan in the book because uh, he's famous for writing a letter in which he uh, says some very uh, nasty things about African Americans. He doesn't want, uh, he's writing to his sister about the, the idea of letting them serve in the Army. And he says, no, they shouldn't be allowed to serve in the Army, and that, uh, that the Irish feel that, uh, feel that it would be degrading to have to serve in the Army with, with blacks. And so he's kind of famous for, for that, and, and that quote kind of typifies the, the attitudes that are said to lead to the New York City draft riots. Well, I, I found Brannigan's story was, was more complicated than, than that. I found that later in the war, and this wasn't, well, hasn't been uh, documented before, that later in the war, he actually uh, has a change of heart, and he actually volunteers to lead a uh, regiment of African-American troops uh, towards the end of the war. And so in 1865 and 1866, he becomes a lieutenant uh, in a, a unit of African-Americans. And then after the war, he uh, goes on to get a law degree uh, and then is made a U.S. attorney and is sent to Mississippi. And there in Mississippi, he's, his main job is to prosecute Klansmen who are are uh, persecuting African Americans, and so I use the story of Felix Brannigan to show that you know that not just Abraham Lincoln, but many Americans kind of grew in their racial attitudes towards during the war and started out with with kind of racist sentiments. Uh, but by the end of the war, the experience had kind of changed their minds and changed their hearts. Indeed, I mean, uh, if you watch the movie Bronx Tale, which I know that particular neighborhood very well, and it's Robert De Niro starred in it. Chaz Palminteri wrote it. It's about a dividing line in New York City in the 1960s between black and Italian. And my goodness, don't cross that street. It wasn't just the South that had racial strife, folks. Uh, it was Boston. It was New York. All over the country, blacks and whites uh, didn't get along in many measures. And only in the South was it by law that blacks and white weren't allowed to live together. But in much of the other parts of the country, the people just, well, they did it anyway. It wasn't the law, but they just lived apart. Uh, talk about Jacob Rees, if you could. What an important person, perhaps uh, one of the, if not the most important New Yorker as it relates to immigrant life. Jacob Rees was, was not your typical immigrant in the sense that he came to New York from Denmark, uh, not a place that sent a lot of immigrants to New York. And he comes not for economic reasons or persecution, but uh, to heal a broken heart, he had been spurned by the, the woman he'd proposed marriage to, and so he decided he had to get as far away from her as possible, and that meant coming to America. And he starts out uh, penniless and, uh, and, and has a hard time making it, but he's very determined, he's very ambitious, something that you find is, is a common thread in, in immigration history. Uh, immigrants particularly tend to be ambitious, hardworking people. And Reese eventually, eventually works his way up to becoming a newspaper reporter, and he, he's assigned to cover the very tenements where the immigrants like him had once lived. And he, he writes about how terrible the conditions are there, yet the writing doesn't seem to have much impact, so he decides uh, to take photographs using the new, uh, the new invention of flash photography and take photographs of the conditions in the tenements. Uh, and he publishes these, these images, and these have the impact that his writing never could. And so Reese is known today as the first photojournalist, and uh, his, his images and his writings about tenements uh, help bring about most of the modern 
most of the modern housing regulation you have in big cities and, and helps reform the tenements and, and, and kind of end the worst uh, the worst conditions that immigrants had suffered through. Indeed, and so if you're ever swimming or find yourself an occasion to be at Reese Park swimming and enjoying that beautiful park, you'll know uh, whom it's named after. Let's talk about James Rivington because, well, not all immigrant stories end well. Uh, well, yeah, you have James Rivington was a uh, an immigrant during the American Revolution, and he was a printer, and he he was the kind of person who, you know, a, a printer, a lot of uh, immigrants during the American Revolution left New York. Um, if they were pro-British, they stayed. If they were pro-American, they left. But Rivington, being a printer, he didn't really have much of an opportunity to do that. It was hard to move a printing press. So he stayed in New York uh, and became the printer to the, to the British during the American Revolution in New York. When the revolution ends, and uh, uh, when the revolution ends, and the the British uh, have to evacuate New York, um, Rivington stays, and a lot of people are surprised that he that he does that. Um, but he does, and and he gets he, he's very uh, badly treated by the Americans who resent the pro-British propaganda he had uh, he had printed, and he's eventually uh, run out of New York as a result. And so, and this happens many times. I mean, not every story is a fluid, easy one. Tell us a story about the Statue of Liberty and its meaning, Professor. I think most of us are unaware that its meaning today wasn't, in fact, the original meaning. No, when the Statue of Liberty was first conceived by the French in the 1860s, they wanted it to be a monument to emancipation, a monument to the emancipation of the slaves during the Civil War. Uh, that was the original intent of the monument. Um, later on, uh, when the idea uh, to, to build the statue is, is having trouble catching on, both the French and the American backers of the project play down that aspect of its original intent and play up the idea of it just being a, a monument uh, commemorating the friendly relations between France and the United States. And, and that's how it's that's how it's thought of when it opens in the 1880s. And then there's, there's a, 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 third, uh, a third way it's perceived, and that, that happens as a result of Emma Lazarus and her poem about, uh, you know, send me your tired uh, and, and so forth, your teeming masses uh, yearning to breathe free. And, and that poem, uh, Lazarus writes as in an attempt to raise money to help build the pedestal for the statue. Um, and once it becomes clear, as, as soon as the statue opens, that immigrants begin to associate the statue with their dreams of coming to America, their dreams of, of freedom, as, as Frank Capra mentioned in your, in your uh, thing there, um, only then, by the beginning of the 20th century, do Americans start to associate the Statue of Liberty with immigration and immigrant dreams, something that the immigrants started doing almost as soon as they started seeing the statue. You know, I'm going to close with this thought because I think two of the main themes of your book is that what's old is new and what's new is old. And the two examples being this. One, immigrants have never assimilated as much and as easily as, as we quite think, that it's always been hard. And anti-immigrant sentiment is a constant of American history, despite our tradition of being a nation of immigrants. Talk about both of those points. we got a minute and a half left. Sure. The... 
what you find when you write about uh, American immigration history is how little it changes, that, that immigrants tend to come for the same things to better their lives, and in particular, better the lives of their children, um, that when they get to America, they, they tend not to assimilate very much. We, we tend to think, why don't today's immigrants assimilate like my grandparents did? But the truth is, our, our grandparents didn't assimilate very much. We tend to, to look at them through rose-colored glasses. And so really, immigrants of every generation are pretty much like immigrants of every generation. And then in terms of anti-immigrant sentiment, um, yes, this is a constant. Uh, for as long as there have been immigrants coming to the United States, there has been anti-immigrant sentiment. Um, and Americans, some Americans have always feared immigrants and thought that, that their generation of immigrants was ruining America in a way immigrants had never done before. So, so my feeling is when you hear that uh, today, that, that today's immigrants are a threat, you need to know that your grandparents or great-grandparents or great-great-grandparents were seen as a threat, too. So true. And thank you, Professor, for joining us. The book is City of Dreams, the 400-year epic history of immigrant New York. The writer, Tyler Anbinder, professor at George Washington University. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. And this is Our American Stories. Go to ouramericannetwork.org to listen to all that we do.